Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. Today is an encore presentation that tells you just how some of our assistive devices come to be. We'll speak with Dominic Labay, Product Development Director for Blindness-Related Products at HumanWare. He'll describe how the process works and how products such as the Victor Reader were shepherded from concept to the marketplace. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Dominic Labay. People should take time to explore, read the user guide. We realize that not many people are reading the user guide. Uh, we tried to make a podcast. Uh, Jerry Chevalier, our former product manager, is still doing some audio recording for us. Uh, but what we realize is that sometimes people are unaware of features that we add, even though we communicate them, even though we put them in the user guide. So I would encourage users to explore the device. There's nothing really dangerous you can do with a device. So just explore and try things. And uh, there's probably a couple of happy surprises that people will get just realizing that, uh, oh, it's got that extra feature that I never talked of. So I would encourage people to really explore the uh, different products that we are producing. And it's really something that people should continue because there's always something that you will learn uh, in the stream that you never realized before. You know, it's interesting. I think you're right. People don't often read documentation anymore. Maybe they never did, but I always learn a lot from documentation. And the other thing is, as you mentioned, you know, you can't break these things in general. And just playing around, noodling around, seeing how the buttons work, what features come up, you can learn a lot also. And I think people are reluctant to do that. It's interesting because we have that running joke with our tech writer that we don't know if her job is really helpful because we're not sure people are reading her document, but that's wrong. You know, people should be reading the user guide. There's a lot of useful information. We put a lot of effort in uh, finding the good level of information in there. And I really encourage people to, to read the user guide, but I know how we are. You know, I got a new DVD machine and I'll try it before reading the user guide. That's how people are working. And that's nice. The, the danger is when people are not curious enough to try it and are not studious enough to read the user guide that's where they don't benefit from the whole functionality of their product because you know either you explore or you read but if not you just won't realize how many new features they are in uh, in a product especially a product that we produce a software upgrade a couple of times a year well we do bring new functionality and um, i would be interested to know how many people actually look at the news feature i know it's uh, something that <laughs> we're never sure whether people are really benefiting from uh, everything we are doing. And if you're not going to read the full documentation, as Dominic says, at least read the new features in every new firmware or software release to a program or application you might be using. That's usually pretty short, but we'll give you a quick overview of what's new. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by the Intracortical Visual Prosthesis Project, as described in Episode 2151. Interested volunteer participants can learn more at www.chicagolighthouse.org ICVP or contact them at ICVP at IIT.edu. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. 
Let's start by meeting Dominic Labbe and learning about humanware. My name is Dominique Labbe. I'm uh, the product development director. That's an R&D position for everything related to blindness. That's both the Victor Reader line of product, but also Apex and Brilliant. I've been working with humanware for the last almost 17 years. My training, my basic training is I did a major in computer science, but nowadays I'm doing both computer stuff in terms of software, but also in terms of hardware and mechanical. I'm in charge basically uh, of taking an idea and transforming that into a product and after that producing uh, upgrades in software for our users. A lot of our listeners and many of our guests have visual impairments. Do you? Not at all. Not at all. I just, I'm having glasses, but nothing that cannot be corrected with glasses. So no, I came to Humanware back then it was visual, almost by accident. They were looking at embedded software developer. I was an embedded software developer in my previous job. So that's how the connection happened. And then I discovered a word of blindness. There's no one in my family that has any significant visual problems. So it was a big discovery for me. And of course, after 16, 17 years, I'm now much more familiar with the issues and the needs, especially toward electronic product than I was before. So it was a brand new experience for me. As a sighted person, do you ever use the humanware products that you work on? I use my stream personally without even looking at the keyboard. So I'm basically using it like any visually impaired people would, uh, would actually do it. That's good to get feedback from people who are using the products in real-life situations. And I understand you also have a number of developers and people on your staff who are blind, and so they're actually providing this kind of input. Correct, yeah. We do work with uh, people on staff, but also we do have a core uh, of uh, what I would call private testers, people that are actual users that we get to know over the years, and they are now part of our small team, so we give them advanced version. They provide us with... Great feedback, both before the version in terms of requirements, but also during the development, they would tell us, oh, this is wrong or this is good, and you should add a little bit more on this. So it's definitely uh, a cooperation. We need the ideas of many people to turn out a good product. I don't think any of us is uh, brilliant enough to to do one product. We need uh, the feedback and the input of uh, many people with different views and different uh, limitation in terms of visual impairment. We, we try to have product that works well for people that are low vision, but also people that are fully blind. And in case of the stream, we even have people that are dyslexics. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is what's involved in bringing a product to market and how humanware in particular does this. So we've had several interviews with representatives from humanware before to talk about some specific products and new technologies. But today we mostly wanted to talk about the product development process and what goes into actually coming up with the ideas for these products, engineering them and getting them out the door. I think there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that people aren't generally aware of. Correct. Yeah, people don't see the magic behind the scene. And and that's normal because we don't want to expose that too much. However, there's enough of nice things we want to share with people. The first thing is that we're definitely user centric. 
we're not doing product just for the sake of doing product. This is not uh, our job. Our job is to do product that uh, responds to users' needs. So the way we, we always work is by first getting requirements. So we talk to people. Uh, my colleague, Matthew Jajinsaskis, our product manager, will be attending conventions, shows. He'll be exchanging emails, having calls. You know, he, he's always in touch with different users in, in U.S., but also in Canada and Europe. Uh, sometimes there's very different needs from uh, Europe than Canada and U.S. simply because the content available is different. So that's really the first step to get feedback and information requirements from real people that are using the product, either end users or in some case reader advisors or technicians that are working uh, with blind people. That's the first step. And that's where it becomes the toughest job where Matthew and I and a few other folks will sit together and we have to put priorities in terms of uh, requirement. And to do that, that's not an easy job because there's always good ideas that needs to be set uh, for a future version. Uh, and then the second next version and a third next version, we, it would be great if we would be able to do everything from day one, but that's not how it works. You know, we have a limited number of people on a given project and we have almost an unlimited list of requirements. So there's a job in putting priorities. And then we validate those priorities with some folks, uh, with some stakeholders, libraries in Europe, consumer groups, uh, NFB, for example, depending on the product. We do uh, involve some people making sure we address in the first version the most important needs and then uh, less important ones are um, scheduled for uh, a version. So that's the really the second step. So after you've decided which features are going to go into the next version of a product, what do you do next? We write specification and we start developing and we do iteration. After that, of course, we involve alpha tester and then beta tester. But the most important thing for us is really making the product right. So we put a lot of effort at the beginning to define the good requirement, define the good user interface. There's a good balance we need to find between complexity, people want's feature, and simplicity of using the product. And honestly, I think we did a fairly good job in the past, and that's really a concern to us to maintain that balance between new features and simplicity. We know that there's 80 years old people that are using our product with not that much technical background, and we have kids at school that can handle about anything we throw at them. So. Finding a balance within a given product is an interesting exercise, at least, to say the least. You know, I think it's interesting, and I'm willing to bet that many people don't have an appreciation for how much discussion and thought goes into these products before any code is actually written or any hardware is made. And, you know, I remember when we were at Xerox, it was very important to get the product organized in terms of its requirements and who you were going to sell the product to and things like that. In our case, we have everything, like I said, from someone at school that have a teacher to help them uh, to a 90-year-old grandfather that unfortunately have not much people to help him. Uh, we need to find a good balance because the kid wants feature, they want performance, and your grandfather wants to be able to read book and he doesn't care about technology, just want the player to read books. And sometimes that's, uh, that's hard to know. It's, it's like a rope. If you pull too much on one side, then there's less on the other side. And that's really, I would love that those meetings are recorded and presented to users. They would appreciate how much time that we spend, but that's our job. And that's the most interesting part of my job. Doing software is something that you like for a few years, but doing product right, that's something you should 
always want to do in the future. And that's where we are. We mainly focus on making the right thing, not just on making some very exotic coding. That's really doing a good product is the only thing that matters to us. So that's interesting. When we were working at Xerox, we would do the same thing. The first thing you needed to come up with was appropriate customer requirements. But being a major corporation and feeding products to basically the entire world, we had a range of products, anything from the low-end desktop slow printers to printers that were the size of a freight train and the quality was fabulous. And so we could target the individual device to the individual segment of the market. And you're saying that you have a small enough customer base that you pretty much need to make each device handle a very large range of customers. That's one of the challenge being in what I call a niche market, a small market uh, that Yes, in a general world, we probably would have five different Victor addressing different type of people, different type of clientele. The market is not big enough, so we need to concentrate on, in our case, for example, on Victor, a small portable and a desktop product. That's the two product to maintain. That's uh, that's a lot of products. And you're right. We have to address many different type of users within the same device. That creates additional challenges. And I think challenges are good because it forces us to think a lot about how to make sure that we cover all those cases. I love challenge. You know, I think one thing that has changed a lot over the past couple of decades, I remember early on, many of these devices relied on specific hardware for specific applications and for a specific version of the application. These days, we can often update our products with firmware or software updates that can actually change and modify the functionality a little bit. And this must allow you a little bit of extra flexibility in terms of customizing for different markets. Definitely. Uh, two things. First, when you start a product, you need to plan a little bit ahead to put enough resources, enough memory, enough CPU. You know, We need to make sure that the machine will be able to evolve because we design product that would stay on the market for a few years. We're not, we're not cell phone companies that are happy for you to change your cell phone after one year or one year and a half. Uh, our users are demanding that we have product that they will be able to use for a few years. We do have a lot of clientele in Europe, as I was mentioning. New countries will happen once in a while, so people need to have devices that would be able to oh, use the English version because, I don't know, the Polish version was not available yet. And then after six months, we finally have a Polish version, so they transfer, they convert their machine to a Polish language machine. Uh, and same thing for new functionality. We know when we put out the first stream, we had to put a few things, but we didn't put any online configuration, any online capabilities, which we introduced with the newer stream. Uh, so sometimes you're able to put provision, sometimes not. That's a challenge. You know, we need to put enough to uh, the lifetime of a product, but sometimes you need to come up with uh, a new generation. That's what we did with the stream two. That's now Wi-Fi aware, and that's a very different product, I guess, from a user point of view. Now that they can listen to internet radio or download books from NLS or access podcast like the one we are actually recording. Well, it's interesting. As you say, I suppose with a niche market, you can't be putting out products every six months like the cell phone companies. And so you have to design your hardware so that it's pretty extensible and will last for a number of years. So it'll be capable of making the software and firmware upgrades when they're available. That has to be a little tricky. 
Oh, this is tricky. And especially, I would say that's one thing I've seen in the last five years, a big change. We used to have access to components that would live on the market for a few years. Now, the consumer electronic is so changing that even CPUs will have a two years lifespan. In the past, I mean, they were newer CPUs, newer memory type, newer components, but you still can get the old one manufactured. So you could keep the design. Now it's even a challenge. Sometimes Parts just disappear because they're replaced by something else. So the cell phone market has transformed the electronic where the cycles are much smaller than they used to be in terms of obsolescence. And that's a a daily challenge. Sometimes you receive an email from uh, a partner that says, well, this CPU or this part will be discontinued at the end of the year. So you have to make a little bit of magic and find a solution. That's really something that has changed over the last five to 10 years where those cycles are now becoming much smaller, a little bit more work for us, I guess. So you talked a little bit about the trade-off between the complexity of the tasks that you want to accomplish versus making the user interface simple so people can easily run the devices. Can you talk a little bit about how you make that trade-off and what kinds of things happen? You have it right. This is one of our major concerns. What we need to make sure is that by adding new functionality, uh, we don't complexify the product. One thing we did, for example, in a stream, we kept the old stream interface for the offline mode, and we have an online mode where people go. That's that's one way to do it. You know, make sure that the simple function remains simple, and then you need to do something to get access to the more complex function. Sometimes we'll, uh, on purpose, we'll just say no to a, a requirement because, yes, we think that 2% of our clients will be happy about this, but we might create too much complexity for the 98% uh, that are not going to be using that function. A good example in the past, uh, some people have asked us to be able to change the sort order of nodes. It's not easy to do with a phone keypad. I would create a little bit of a complex interface. We stay away from that because we talk that most people would benefit from a simpler interface when recording audio notes. That's just an example. There's thousands of them over the last uh, 17 years of doing a Victor. But that's the kind of decision we have to make on a daily basis when we develop a product. And we talked a little bit before we actually started the interview about how you get suggestions from people. And sometimes these suggestions can't always be incorporated. Can you reiterate some of that for our listeners? Yes, we do receive a lot of requests, suggestions, ideas from uh, our users. Most of the time, those are great ideas. Sometimes there's a few things that unfortunately doesn't make sense. We have to explain to users that even though they think it's a good idea, it doesn't fit with the philosophy of the product or it's a completely outside uh, requirement. But sometimes they have great interesting ideas. However, there's many of them. We have hundreds and hundreds of requirements being sent to us by user and stakeholders. And we have to make choices. And sometimes I'll receive email from one guy that's not happy because his requirement that was probably for him the most important idea was unfortunately not in a version. So sometimes it leads to interesting discussion where we have to explain to people that it's a little bit like a democracy, you know, you cannot decide everything, you can only suggest and there's some decisions that are made by the product management committee. That's interesting. Sometimes we have to leave good idea and sometimes we also have to explain to people that their idea, which might be good for them, doesn't fit well with the whole product. There are always trade-offs to be made. Definitely. I mean, trade-off is what an engineer is doing on a daily basis. Uh, (laughs) Trade-off between performance and requirements, trade-off between different requirements, trade-off between a schedule and functionality. Do we want a version in three months or we want X number of functionality? 
that's one of the most interesting but challenging part uh, of my work is to make those trade-offs and make sure we, we make the good decision at the good time. So I know this next step that we're about to whiz through is an awful lot of the time that evolves in developing a new product. But once you've got all of the customer requirements and you've made all of the decisions and the trade-offs on what features you want to include, a whole bunch of smart people go off and spend a whole bunch of time making all of those features happen, whether it's software or hardware or both or something. And then you're ready to test these features and make sure everything actually works. Can you talk about what kind of processes you go through for testing and and validating all the new features? Sure. Every time we do a new version, there's two different processes that happen in parallel. So we start with requirement, we define the requirement, we develop them, and then we have versions, uh, alpha and beta version. We have two different processes in parallel. One is internal. So we have a QA team. They start from requirement. They make a test plan. It's very detailed. Press on that button, press on that button, and this is the expected result and so on. That's very, I would say, uh, scientific in terms of covering all the requirements. That's very important. And on the other side, we think that sometimes users come up with combination. We have not talked about uh, different content a very strange internet radio station that gave us trouble. So we do have two levels of beta testing that happens uh, nowadays with, with our product. We have a, a core team of what we call the alpha tester. There's a selected and full um, number of people that we exchange early version with them. They are familiar with the product. They understand it could crash. It could do a lot of bad things, but they're happy to do so to advance the product. And that's the first step. The second step, we have what we now call open beta testers. So before we release a version, we'll simply um, make a version available. That's a few hundred people that are part of that beta tester group. So those one are people that we don't manage, that we don't control. They're just average regular user that do average regular things with their stream. And they still find something, even though we have a good test plan, even though we did alpha testing, They'll find something that none of us ever think that someone would do with the products. So at the end of that, we I think we have covered both science in terms of a matrix of testing and I would say heuristic testing with users just using the product like they would in real life. And I think at the end, it results in a good coverage of all the usage uh, uh, people can do with this uh, product. And that's how we handle that. And then we go for a release and uh, then we always hope that uh, everybody done their job properly. And if there's anything anybody missed, you get bug reports, and how do you respond to those? Oh, correct. I mean, even if we've done our job properly, there's always problems that happen. So we do maintain in real time a list of bugs. I mean, bugs are sent to us by technical support. We saw some of them on mailing list. Uh, some of us are in contact with specific users, dealers. So we do receive a lot of, let's call them requirements slash issues slash bugs, and Sometimes people will say uh, that's a bug. We say it's a requirement. That's that's not important. We just track all of them. And of course, once we start doing the next software release, the same thing as for requirement bugs are put in priorities. And of course, we address the ones that are the most important first. And then the other ones are scheduled uh, depending on the availability of development team. I wonder, without being too specific, if you can give people an appreciation of the timescales involved here from the first concept of a new idea or product to actually pushing that product out the door. 
I know I've worked at Xerox on inkjet printers, and you know I would work on one for 10 years before you'd see it being sold in a store. The product cycle is a question I get asked very often. Usually, I would say a new product, probably between 12 and 24 months, depending on if it's a brand new market, a brand new idea, or an existing market like we're doing a stream, but we already have a previous stream. So like I said to people, it always depends where it starts. Does it start when we have an idea or does it start when we actually have a project plan? So it's very interesting, but it's hard to get up to 24 months because people get impatient. They put money in a project and they want some result. On the other side, when you do plastic, when you have to do molds, uh, when we do have to uh, uh, work on requirements, do some uh, usability testing, there, there's a lot of things that are involved. So, yeah, it does take time. And everybody wished it would be smaller, but we need to make the device right, not just in time. Uh, I remember when I started, an old wise man told me, if you deliver a little bit late, you know, you're going to have a bad time for a couple of days. But after six months, no one will remember. If you do a bad product, you'll hear about that for the rest of your life. So I took that advice in my daily activities very seriously. Well, it must feel great and be very rewarding when you get the product finally out there successfully into the hands of your customers. I was thinking about a little story that happened to me the first time I met a user by accident that has one of my products. I was in an airport uh, and I saw a guy using a stream. It was many years ago, first couple of months after we released the stream. And unfortunately, he was actually getting into the into the plane. He was in the lineup to check in. But I wish I would have sit with him because that was the first time outside of a convention, outside of a place where I expect to meet users that was meeting someone. And that's the day you realize that you're, you've been doing something. You know, Before that, it's like theory. You're meeting people that you know they are blind, and you expect that at the convention. But the first time you meet someone on the street that uses one of your products, that's very surprising and very interesting to see that your product is somewhere in the real world. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to get more information and products also from humanware. If anybody's interested in purchasing one of the humanware products or just learning more about them, where would they go? So the best way for learning about our new products or even the existing product is to go on our website. That's www.humanware.com. All the information is there and feel free also to call if you need more information. We have a customer support and we have salespeople that will be happy to discuss. We also have a lot of dealers in the United States and in Canada. So sometimes people prefer to uh, get in touch with local dealers. So they are listed somewhere on our website with different addresses and phone number for a local uh, dealer. Is there a main phone number? So if people want to uh, give us a call, uh, it's a toll-free number. That's uh, 1-800-722-3393. So call us if you have any question or if you want to order. And what's your Twitter handle? So our Twitter account is uh, simply Humanware, and we also have uh, pages on Facebook, uh, both for Europe and North America. So if you want to follow us, uh, there's some useful information, especially information about convention and shows that we are attending and, of course, information. And if you go on our website also, there's a few mailing lists you can subscribe to. Uh, so you're going to receive information about newer version or newer product, depending on which mailing lists you decide to subscribe to. 
As usual, you can catch all of that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 2207. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about rock climbing. John Churcher's experience is proof that it is never too late to begin something new. Inspired by a friend later in life, he soon became an avid rock climber. We'll talk with him about what rock climbing means to him, how he does it as a blind person, and about some of his adventures, including scaling the Eiger, a several-day endeavor. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Eyes on Success, and we hope to catch you next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.